Hello, and welcome to Episode 4 of Aegis Therapy's PDPM podcast series, a resource dedicated to covering Aegis' approach to PDPM. Today we're going to cover the MDS in PDPM and the enhanced need for collaboration between therapy, nursing, and MDS coordinators. I'm Hal Price, Senior Vice President of Sales, Marketing, and Communication for Aegis, and in this episode, we welcome a new addition to our conversation. Tyler Bjorhus is our Clinical Practice Specialist at Aegis Therapies, along with Mark Desch, Chief Clinical Officer, Bill Goulding, National Director of Outcomes and Reimbursement, and Matt Robbie, Vice President of Business Development. Tyler has been working across the country at Aegis's PDPM pilots and beta sites to help identify best practices for PDPM implementation at the facility level. Tyler, thanks very much for joining us today. Hello, thanks for having me. Well, let's get started with our first question. And uh, as you take a look at the landscape, there's so much talk about MDS and how different things are going to be in the PDPM environment versus what we've grown accustomed to in uh, in PPS. Bill, I'm going to start with you. Is there really that dramatic of a difference going forward? Well, it's, it's kind of deceptive because if you look at the draft of the MDS that uh, CMS put out there on its website, um, it doesn't look all that different. There are tweaks here and there, but it's not so much about the MDS changing. It's how the MDS is going to be used that has changed. Uh, In our current reality under the RUG system, uh, the software systems that try and group or classify a resident, they really only need to look at um, well, well, let's say for the, the typical resident that's classified into one of the rehab drugs over 90% of the time, they're looking at um, uh, Section O and Section G, and they're, they're looking at about 30 items. And so those 30 items are going to drive uh, the reimbursement for our customers. In contrast, the exact same or, or, or a very similar format of the NDS is going to be used very differently under PDPM. That software grouper is going to have to look at over 125 items uh, in order to classify the patient under PDPM because it's looking at all the different conditions, all the different services, and in some cases, even some of the outcomes that are reflected on the MDS that had not been polled before under our current uh, RUG system. And uh, so it, it, it's look, it has its digital fingerprints, if you will, all over the MDS, but some of those items um, I, I know, Mark, you, you know that some of those items are, are going to have more of an impact than others. Um, there's there's one in particular, um, I-20B, that I've heard you talk about that uh, really is going to be huge. Right, right. Um, that's a great point, Bill. And, uh, uh, you, you know, under PDPM, we've talked about how payment is is based on the, the characteristics of the resident, right? So it doesn't have anything to do with, with delivery of service or volume. Well, one of the big characteristics of any given individual is what CMS is calling the primary reason for the SNF stay. What's the, what's the primary diagnosis, if you will, that has resulted in that person being admitted to the skilled nursing facility? And that, that may or may not be the same uh, as the primary do- diagnosis for which they were admitted to the hospital. And so one of the things that has changed on the MDS is that CMS has created this this new field or new item number on the MDS. It's part of Section I on the MDS, which has to do with 
conditions, diagnoses, if you will, that a particular individual might have. So there's this new item called I-20B. Um, that's just where it's located on the MDS. And it's really just a field that um, facilities are required to enter an, an ICD-10 code. And that ICD-10 code needs to represent the, the diagnosis uh, that, is, that fits that description, the primary reason for the SNF stay. And so coding, becoming more, um, more informed about ICD-10 coding, while probably, probably facilities don't need to necessarily have uh, personnel that are credentialed as coders, but certainly being more informed and more aware of ICD-10 codes and being able to differentiate different codes. Many times when a, a resident is admitted from a hospital, you might get information that for, for six or eight or maybe even 10 different codes. And so um, it'll be important to be able to choose which of those codes kind of answers that question. Um, now, uh, a complicating factor <laughs> is that um, if you look at the, the list of all the possible ICD-10 codes that CMS has included in this project, there's about 65,000 of them. That's an incredibly large number. Uh, what's interesting, though, is that uh, uh, a little over a third of them, almost 24,000, about 37%, um, actually won't be considered valid codes for purposes of placing patients into uh, one of the condition categories that helps to uh, establish the case mix group and the case mix weight. And the reason they're not considered uh, valid codes is CMS doesn't think they're specific enough. And so if providers utilize one of those codes, they'll be able to submit the claim, but it, they won't they won't get a payment. Um, it'll actually, it's called RTP, return to provider is the status, and it'll have to be resubmitted. So just that one field, that I-20B, uh, that new field on the S, MDS rather, has become so critical and so important in, uh, in not only uh, describing the resident and the primary reason for the stay, but also uh, impacting reimbursement because if it happens to be one of those return to providers, it's going to delay uh, any payment because it would require resubmission. So, so um, uh, Section I and uh, and different diagnoses um, has um, has really become um, increased, if you will, in terms of importance. Um, and I would just maybe kick it over to Matt. You know, one of the things we hear a lot, Matt, is that. People are going to have to be more accurate on the MDS, and I know internally we've talked about it. It's maybe not as much <clears throat> being accurate as being thorough. Um, do you want to comment on that a little bit more? Yeah, I, I think you're hitting the nail on the head. Is you know MDS has always been with us. I mean, through the entire PPS journey, and and while we've kind of had and flowed in what we have to document, some of the critical importance has changed as it relates to PDPM. And and, and when we think about some of the key areas, uh, GG for example, was obviously one of the ones we've started a few years back. And while we've been focused on it, uh, it has not been a key driver of attention uh, on an ongoing basis throughout the state. Um, and so we'll complete it, um, you know, we'll get the, the right functional scores uh, engaged, 
However, in the new model, changes in functional status will really heavily determine your case mix indices uh, used in the calculations. So that is going to take a much more uh, frontline focus and, and really the, the ongoing evaluation of those on a day-to-day -day basis is going to be a critical handoff. And, you know, when we think about what that's going to look like from a clinical perspective, I'll ask Tyler to talk a little bit about this in a second, but really getting that functional score documented and, and handed off within the facility very cohesively as well as thoroughly uh, is going to change the way we do things. Um, the, the highest level of CMI we're going to be able to code under the new model is going to be in the first few days of the stay. Uh, so if we delay our coding of the MDS even beyond day three or day four, our CMIs could be drastically impacted and we're not going to take credit for the acuity of the patients that we're actually seeing or treating. So those are critical pieces of what we have to be thinking about. Tyler, from your perspective, when you, when you think about GG and the functional scoring, what are you seeing on the clinical side and how that might be impacted? Sure, yeah, thanks, Matt. So one of the biggest overarching items as it relates to all of these um, MDS areas is collaboration. So from section GG, um, therapy has been scoring section GG for the last two years, but it, it hasn't always been a, a, a very cohesive, collaborative effort with MDS coordinators. Um, in some facilities, MDS coordinators, they take every section of the MDS and they, they rate them independently. In other facilities, section GG is completed by therapy and MDS directly takes that and they, they dump it into their claim. But as we really look ahead to PDPM, every area of the MDS has potential for collaboration between therapy, between nursing, between really the entire interdisciplinary team. So as we look at section GG, therapy, they may see a patient on day one performing um, a, specific, a specific way, but then the nursing assistants or nursing staff may see a, see a patient performing very differently. So as we look at the usual performance over the first three days of the stay, um, it's important that we collaborate. And even looking down the line at the different areas of the MDS, um, that will impact payments. You know, we look at um, Section K, which Section K is looking at swallowing and nutritional status. You know, MDS and nursing, they can certainly assess that, but having speech therapy involved to provide their level of expertise. Looking at Section I with the active diagnoses, um, you know, specifically reason for the SNF state at I-20B, that is a very collaborative decision versus in the past, we've relied very heavily on reason or the primary diagnosis as per the, as per the hospital stay. But in the SNF, the reason for the SNF stay with that I-20B should be a discussion between therapy, between nursing, between the on-site physician team. Um, there's so many elements within the MDS that um, will require collaboration. You know, one of the things, Hal, that um, I think we definitely need to talk about uh, with regards to the MDS is how the assessment schedule has changed and how they've, they've, they've basically limited it to a, a five-day admission assessment and a discharge assessment, and then they've added this new optional assessment called an IPA, an interim payment assessment. And, uh, Mark, there, there's been some, um, oh, let's call it a, a lack of clarity or some confusion around the, the Potential triggers for an IPA and, and and when it might be appropriate. So uh, you know what what have you learned on on that topic? Well, you know that's a great point, Bill. If, if we think back to when the proposed rule came out just a little bit over a year ago for for PDPM, in that proposed rule around this concept of IPA, which was included at that time, 
But it was different because in the proposed rule, there were certain criteria that were spelled out that would uh, require um, or trigger, if you will, one of these interim payment assessments. And while the, there were criteria that were spelled out, it created uh, a lot of questions uh, in the industry. And so many, many people, ourselves included, during the comment period following the proposed rule, raised those issues, some of the confusion that we saw around the way CMS had, had defined these criteria, these triggers. And so, um, lo and behold, um, at, in, at the end of July, when the final rule comes out, CMS had really done away with all of those criteria um, and, and the trigger concept and, and basically retained this interim payment assessment, but declared, if you will, that it would be optional. In other words, the provider would determine whether and when uh, to um, to submit this uh, interim assessment, and the, the the result of that assessment is that payment would be adjusted. Um, it would be adjusted effective the uh, the date that um, that was assigned as the the ARD for that IPA, and so that we found that interesting at the time that they would go from pre-specific criteria to optional. Um, I, for one, have felt for a while that uh, given that there's another round of rulemaking uh, before October 1st, that we might see some additional clarification in, in that regard. But Nat, you were just telling me a day or so ago that there was some new information that you had read from uh, John Kane at CMS about this. Can you share that with us? Yeah, as a matter of fact, when, when we, we heard the information, we were a little surprised uh, because we truly had believed that there's going to be much, much more clarification coming down the pipeline. Uh, but even as the most recent communications we've heard, um, it, it is simply going to be that. Um, CMS is indicating that there, we should not expect major uh, changes or significant variations in, in the approach for the optional status related to the IPAs. Now, when we think about what that's going to look like in the future, um, certainly providers are going to have to determine the handoffs and the protocols that they're going to make, um, but CMS really isn't going to set any hard rules for us as, as of this point. Now, it may be a, just a matter of time before that's coming, uh, so we might as well take advantage of the opportunity now to kind of really uh, hone up our processes to kind of get prepared for that day because it will probably come in the near future. Um, and on that front, you know, when we think about some of the IPA examples, you know, what, what could trigger an IPA? You know, it could be things like, uh, Tyler, you were talking about the functional status. Uh, it could be changes in what Bill and, and, and Mark, you were talking about with the I-20B or even I-8000. But when we also think about it, you know, there's also potentials that the, the patient could exhibit new symptoms or new conditions during the stay. Um, and those could be elements that could contribute to other components of the, the methodology, like the NTA, uh, the non-therapy ancillary component, which has a lot of components in the, the, the uh, MDS. I think it's 26 different diagnostic codes. Is that right, um, um, anyone on the call? you remember? I think it is. I think it is 26 yeah. or 28, quite a few anyway. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and when we think about those and coming up with new diagnostic categories, um, and, and it can be anything from a checkbox to keying in I-8000 or even potentially looking at other fields uh, within the MDS for section H, I, J, K. Um, but these elements are going to contribute to the CMI and, and potentially contribute points under the comorbidities portion or conditions and services portion 
which can significantly change the way you're going to get reimbursed for, for the stay. One that we talk about quite frequently is, is uh, obesity. Um, when we look at current MDS coding, uh, morbid obesity is one that we rarely document on, on MDSs. And in the past, it really had no impact on the overall um, uh, treatment or care plan. We were still doing all the care that we needed. We just didn't take credit for the coding. Um, on the future model, that particular code could be one of those elements that could uh, tip the points as it relates to your CMI and move you into another uh, category for, for potential reimbursement. Uh, and any others come to your, your mind, Mark, when you think about those? Well, I, I think, um, you know, it's just, it, it's certainly a good thing that we have this this um, opportunity to, um, if, a, if a resident's condition does indeed change, whether it's a diagnosis or whether it's a, a functional ability uh, based or perhaps develop some swallowing issues um, would be another, I think, category uh, that is captured on the MDS uh, that might be a reason to consider uh, doing an IPA. You know, it, the other thing it underscores for me, Matt, Tyler, you talked a little bit about the uh, the collaboration around the the um, the different sections of the MDS to try to assist uh, the MDS coordinators to get a, a a true picture of the resident. The RAI manual says it should it should represent the resident's usual level uh, over the three day uh, assessment uh, period. And so that's this is another great example of uh, of, of uh, the, the benefit of enhanced collaboration, so that as therapists. Uh, might observe some changes uh, in a particular patient. Might be their level of performance, or again, it could be maybe related to, to eating or swallowing. Uh, that they they realize that um, this could this could have an impact, and they realize how important it is to make sure that they share that, and it gets truly communicated and and documented, so that um, if the decision is made to pursue the IPA that uh, the necessary uh, clinical record would be there to support uh, that change. So I think that's um, that's important as well. Bill, I was going to ask you to comment on one, one additional thing, perhaps, related to MDS, and that is we talked a lot about diagnosis and, uh, and function, and that relates primarily to the PT and the OT components, but the, in the speech component, there's a number of, of dependencies on MDS information as well, and I wondered as a speech pathologist, if you would like to comment on that. Yeah, there are a couple of things. Um, first of all, you know, Matt uh, talked about uh, Section K with swallowing and nutrition. And so for speech, one of the things that um, is going to be uh, going to have an impact is um, the presence of a swallowing disorder or and or um, the need for a mechanically altered diet. And so Section K, as Matt said, uh, becomes more important. But Beyond that, um, the, uh, the actuarial company that designed PDPM um, identified 12 specific comorbidities or conditions that when any one of them is present, really changes the way that speech-language pathology services are delivered and needs to be incorporated in the payment system. So these, these dozen diagnoses come from all over the MDS, and so some are in section B with communication, some are in section C with cognition, um, uh, some are in section I with you know all, all of the, the conditions. As I said, some are in section K, 
Uh, so uh, again, it really um, points to the importance of uh, the MDS needing to be able to paint a, a very, very specific picture of how unique each resident is. Well, there's an awful lot to be thinking about with this. So many changes coming. I do have one final question before we wrap this session up, and I'll just toss this out to anyone. If if I am operating a, a SNF, I, I know so many changes are coming on the horizon for my staff. What, what do you recommend I should be doing today to begin level setting my staff to start thinking about the changes that I'm going to need to be prepared for down the road? You know, one of the things we say, Hal, this is Mark, uh, uh, frequently uh, with it, folks that we interact with about this is one of the things we suggest is learn all you can. There are so many different source, great sources of information available, webinars, podcasts like this, uh, CMS puts on training sessions. And so really avail themselves to, uh, access to as much information as possible and then begin to try to apply that information to their individual facilities. So CMS has provided some, some tools to look at impact of a given facility, and, and uh, you can look at how the, uh, the Medicare days um, from using 2017 data might um, sift into the different uh, case mix groups under PDPM. All of that is instructive because Facilities want to learn <clears throat> as much as you can about uh, your residents. Are your residents typical of of uh, many re as residents in many facilities, or are there some things that, about them that are unique? And either way, um, are your MDSs reflecting as accurate and as complete is probably a better word to use uh, picture of of the resident? You know, Bill has a great uh, analogy he uses where um, we've, we, I just described the MDS as a picture uh, of a given resident. And for years, those pictures have sort of been Polaroid quality. Um, good enough, uh, Bill talked about the 30 items that typically are enough uh, to uh, classify a resident today under rugs. But, but those Polaroid quality pictures are not going to be adequate um, or optimal uh, under, under PDPM. And so now we're talking about you know more high def or high resolution pictures. In other words, more focus, more being more meticulous at being uh, extremely inclusive and and uh, aware of all of these different MDS elements. I th so I think education, health, and practice would be the two things I would I would think of. Well, thanks very much for those uh, closing thoughts. We appreciate it. Uh, thanks to everybody for for listening in. Uh, and please be on the lookout for our next podcast. Uh, our next topic is going to cover Section GG and non-therapy ancillary conditions and services. So for, uh, for Aegis Therapies, this is Hal Price signing off for now. Thank you.